old habits are, or old ways are hard to break. Would you agree? Yes, yes, they are. I, we moved our, our clothes hamper for years. It's been in one particular location in the closet, and we moved it to another location. And I, I kid you not, I still systematically open the closet and go to throw my clothes there, which then hit the ground. And I, I don't know, and I can see the hamper right there. It just does not register. But, you know, that's just the way we are. Well, for the Jewish people, for the Jewish people and the law, this is something they had for hundreds of years, the law of Moses. And what we're going to look at today is Paul says some pretty radical things concerning the law and how they're to think about the law now, which is very different than how they had been thinking about the law. And it was, it was difficult. It was very difficult for them to make that adjustment. And you'll see that in, in the text. I'm going to read from Acts first. Now, Acts is, is really just the history of, of the church, the birth of the church, and it's explaining things that are going on in the first century. It's descriptive. And so it's helpful for us to understand the historical context in which the church was born, and the things going on between Jews and Gentiles and things of that nature. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump into Acts 14. If you want, you can turn your Bibles there. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. It's the book just before Romans. And if you want to look at four, chapter 14, I'm going to jump in at verse 27. I just want to read you this as an introduction to our text this morning, okay? Beginning in chapter 14, verse 27... The scripture says, and when they, they is Paul, the apostle Paul and his ministry partner Barnabas, when they, Paul and Barnabas, arrived, they arrived in Antioch of Syria. So there's two Antiochs. This one's to the east and above north of Jerusalem. And so they arrived there in Antioch of Syria, Paul and Barnabas, and gathered the church together, Christians, uh, they declared, they were telling them all that God had done with them. See, Paul and Barnabas were, were preaching the gospel. They were telling people about the good news. So they've, they've come back from this trip. They've, they've made their way now, and they've come back, and, and they want to give a report. Okay? Pretty simple. So they declared all that God had done with them and, and how he, God, had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Now, you've got to understand, this is, this is big news. The Gentiles now are, are coming into the faith, they're, they're, they're placing their faith in God, they're, they're becoming part of the church. Gentiles? Gentiles were always those outside. This was for the Jews, but you know, he's given this good report, listen to what God is doing among the Gentiles, right? And they remained there in verse 28, no little time with the disciples. They spent some time there telling these things, talking to them. And now, chapter 15, verse 1, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, custom of Moses, this is according to the law of Moses. This is the law that the Jewish people had. They understood it. They had it for hundreds of years. They lived by it. And they say, wait just a minute. Unless these Gentiles are circumcised, they can't become part of the faith. They can't enter into a relationship with God. Watch verse 2. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, I bet an argument broke out, and not a small one. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem, 
to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, the fact that the Gentiles were coming to faith in Christ, and brought great joy to all the brothers. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, now listen, these are believers, these are, I believe, followers of Jesus Christ, okay? But they, had, they've, they belonged to the party of the Pharisees. Well, what party was that? This was the religious sect who were defenders of the law. They wanted to make sure that the law was not violated, that the law was upheld. Do you know Paul was part of this party? The Apostle Paul? He was a Pharisee. Okay, so this is their way. This is how it has always been. So they come up and they say they're part of the party of the Pharisees, and they rose up and said, we hear what you're saying about the Gentiles, but listen, it is, now back to the text, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Okay, now, beloved, when we talk about the law of Moses, we're talking about, I'll say this again, we're talking about the law that God gave to his people through his servant Moses, which most of you are most familiar with the Ten Commandments. It's included in that law. But there's also laws concerning civil matters and their ceremony, how they worship, and things of that nature. But it's one law. It's one big piece of legislation. So do you get what they're saying? Listen, they can't just come to Christ and have a relationship with God through faith. That, there's got to be more. They got to be circumcised because that's according to the law, and they got to keep the law of Moses. You got to tell them to do that. Look what happens. Verse six: The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and after there had been again much debate. So understand, this is they're trying to deal with this. They're wrestling with this. Now, this is strange. You're right. We've always. We've been under the law. We've preached the law. We've, we've followed the law. This, it's law, 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 law. And uh, now what do we do with these Gentiles? I mean, they're a bunch of lawless bums, you know? I mean, we've we got to give them the law or they're going to act the fool. That's what's going to happen. And they, they certainly can't just come in without the law. This is not... They, they have to follow the law. And there's back and forth. But wait a minute, isn't it just faith in Christ? And so they're debating... And after there had been much debate, Peter, the apostle Peter, follower of Christ, disciple of Christ, one of the twelve, he stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. Watch this. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did us. So now he's, he's referring back to the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured upon the people there, the Jews that were there, and they know that this Holy Spirit has also been poured upon these Gentiles, came upon these Gentiles, okay? So they, now wait a minute, God gave them his spirit just like he did us. And he made, listen, verse 9, no distinction between us and them. Who's the them? Gentiles. He made no distinction between us, the Jewish people, and them, the Gentile people, having cleansed their hearts. How? By faith. He made them right with him 
by faith. Forgiving all their sins by faith. Bringing them into relationship with him by faith. Verse 10. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? What is he talking about? The law of Moses. Why would you place that kind of yoke on them? You, you've seen what it's done to us. We couldn't bear it. You think they can? But we believe that we will be saved. Who's the we? Jews. Through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they, who's the they? Gentiles will. Hey, we're saved the same way. We come into relationship with God now the same exact way, through faith in Jesus Christ. End of story. But do you see the, the debate that's going on? Okay, this, this debate, this subject concerning Christians and their relationship to the law of Moses, or the law, as I said, that God gave to his people through his servant Moses. So sometimes you'll, you'll hear people refer to it as the Mosaic law, or just the law of Moses, or just the law. But it's all reference to the same thing. This law that he, he gave and the issue concerning how Christians now are to relate to the law was one of the major issues that Paul repeatedly had to deal with, the Apostle Paul, in his ministry of preaching and teaching the gospel because he had a ministry specifically to the Gentile people. Okay? And this came up again and again. And if you read the book of Galatians and Romans, you'll see it most clearly there. We're in Romans, so we're going to see it. But I would encourage you to read the book of Galatians to see this is the same issue. You have people coming into the church and saying, it's not enough. Faith is not enough. You have to come under the law. You have to be circumcised. You have to live in obedience to this law. We're going to force it on you. Okay? So, and by the way, uh, you say, well, that was in the first century. Well, it's not just in the first century. This issue, this issue of the Mosaic law and the Christian is still an issue today for Christians. Maybe you go, I don't, I've never, I don't even know it's an issue. Okay. But I'm just letting you know in the Christian communities, it is an issue. This is still debated. This is still going on. And so I want to, I just want to give you, I won't answer every question today. I might raise questions in your mind that you've never thought of, but I, I want you to stay with me. I'm gonna, I'm, we're going to go through chapter 7. We'll get through the first six verses today, but we'll keep coming back at this. And, but I want to give you a resource, or actually recommend a resource. I only have one, so I can't give it to you. Um, it's called Law and Grace. Law and Grace. Maybe you've wondered, how am I to relate to the law of God that I find in the Old Testament, the Mosaic Law? It, is it for me? And if it is, in what way? And so the writer here deals with these two issues, law and grace. I, think, I thought we were under grace. Are we under law and grace? Are we under grace but not law? I'm confused. And a lot of people are. So this book is by Alva J. McLean. It's been reprinted multiple times. Let me just read a couple of things from the back here. It says, this is a very excellent yet concise study about the place of the law, the Mosaic law, in relation to the Christian believer who is saved by grace. And one person goes on to say, Dr. McLean in this brief treatise deals with the issue in a simple 
That's why I like it. It's simple, easy to understand, yet scholarly manner. He first examines the biblical usages and meaning of the word law. Then he proceeds to deal progressively with such questions as the divine purpose in giving the law. Why did God give the law? And then the inability of the law to save men. And then the relationship of Jews, Gentiles, and Christians to the Mosaic law. And finally, the dangers of putting Christians under the law. Now, that's probably the biggest one that we deal with now, this day. And you say, well, uh, I don't even know what you're talking about, putting Christians under the law. Let me just, I'll just give you something to think about, and you're going to go, huh? Maybe. Um, anytime someone tells you that you have to tithe, they are putting you under the law of Moses. Now, maybe that's shocking to you. Maybe that's shocking to you. Maybe you say, well, wait a minute. Tithe, 10% of your income goes to the Lord. And if you don't do this, then you're disobedient to God. You're breaking the law. They are effectively putting you under the law of Moses. So does that mean Christians don't have to give? Well, thank you. <laughs> Who said that so loud? Was that you, Thomas? That makes sense. He's coming on staff full time, so he's hoping. <laughs> no, Lord, no, no. Jeremy, where are you going with this? This is terrible. Uh, it's not terrible. I need to talk to you about giving. I'm not going to do that today. I've never done that, have I? Seeing you've been here from day one, I've never talked to you about giving. I need to. I need to, but, but we practice grace giving. We practice giving according to the Spirit of God, which is a, it's just a much different thing than giving according to the law of Moses. So... I'll come back to that, but as we've already seen in our study of Rome, not today, I'll come back to that in the future, as we've already seen in our study of Romans, Paul has made it very clear in the first five chapters of Romans that the law, now this is review, guys, that the law is not able to save anyone, right? It can't save anyone, Jew or Gentile. It cannot justify a sinner or make a sinner right with God. Instead, what we have learned is that rather than saving the sinner, the law reveals sin and condemns the sinner, condemns them, and it brings the wrath of God against them. That's the law. The sinner, according to the gospel, according to Romans, is saved only by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ and not by or through the law in any way. Hello, right? That's what we've learned so far if you've been with us. That's important that you don't miss that. Now, in chapter 6 of Romans and extending to chapter 8, having already explained and defended justification, because that's what we're talking about, by grace, through faith, apart from the works of the law, in the previous chapters, previous to chapter 6, Paul now goes on to instruct his Christian readers concerning their sanctification. Sanctification. Remember, that's where we are now in this part of Romans. We're no longer talking about justification. We're talking about the results of justification, which are or is sanctification. That being the subject of how the Christian becomes more and more like Christ and free from the presence of sin in their actual lives. And beloved, listen carefully to me. Listen carefully now. Just as it is true that the law is not able to save anyone... It is also just as true that the law is not able to sanctify anyone. 
It is not able to sanctify anyone. And yet, that is exactly what many in Paul's day believed. They believed that the law was given to make them holy. They believed that sanctification actually was impossible, impossible without the law. You see why they were concerned? Are you kidding me? You're going to bring Gentiles into the church? Well, then you better give them the law and lots of it because they're a messed up bunch of folks. And the only way they're ever going to be made right with God, made holy, is a good dose of the law. That's what they need. Do you understand? Because that's what they thought, beloved. That's what they believed. But the Apostle Paul contradicts that very notion, and we see the first hint of that in Romans 6.14. You might remember this. We already looked at this. Remember in Romans 6.14, Paul hints at this, that it's not the law. Remember, this is in the context of sanctification that he's making these statements. And he says this in Romans 6.14, For sin will have no dominion over you. Do you remember that? No dominion over you. Sin will have no mastery over you, as one translation says it. Or sin shall not be your master. Based on what? He answers, since you are not under law, but under grace. Since you are not under law, but under grace. What? That almost seems not to, that seems opposite of what you would think. If the law makes people holy, then how am I going to break the power of sin without the law? No, Paul says, sin will have no dominion over you because you're not under law, but under grace. Notice he doesn't say, hey, it won't have any power over you because you're under grace. He doesn't just say that. He says, no, because you're not under law, Mosaic law. The law of Moses, that's what he's been referring to. That's what he's talking about in the book of Romans. And and after this statement, a statement that would have especially been hard for the Jew to hear and embrace, okay? It seems like Paul's just dismissing the law. After that statement, in verses 15 through 23 of chapter 6, Paul now dismisses any suggestion that what he just said should be understood as permission to sin or something that might encourage sinful behavior. He dismisses that. And how does he do that? Well, he goes on to make it clear that the one who is under grace, under its power, that one, who's that? The Christian. They are no longer a slave of sin, but rather now they are a slave of righteousness, a slave of God, which, oh, by the way, leads to sanctification. As we've, and we've already gone over that in detail. But after addressing that, he now in chapter 7 deals more fully with this matter of the law and the fact that the Christian is not under it, as he said in verse 14. So he comes back now. He's coming back at that statement again, and he says, I need to address this. I just made a pretty big statement that your, your freedom from the dominion of sin is based on the fact that you are no longer under the law but under grace. And That is such a big statement to make. Let me come back now to this issue of the law. And that's where he picks back up in chapter 7. And that's where we are. Now, let me add something here. Some teach, and this might, I don't know, it might go over your heads. Just try to absorb it and kind of plant it somewhere in the back of your mind because it'll come up again. 
Some teach that when Paul says in verse 14, the Christian is not under the law, some teach this, and I, I'm just going to tell you, I respect, respectfully disagree with their position. He teaches that, he is, that Paul is strictly referring to the fact that the Christian is no longer under the condemnation pronounced by the law. No longer under its condemnation. Now, I don't deny that it includes that. It certainly includes that. When Paul says you're not under the law, it certainly includes the fact that the Christian is no longer under the power of the law's condemnation. But I would not confine its meaning to that. I don't believe that's the only thing it means. I don't even think that's what Paul primarily means here. Throughout chapter 6 through 8, this section on sanctification, Paul's focus is not so much on condemnation. He's dealing with that in justification. Hey, listen, we're not condemned because we're justified through faith in Christ. Therefore, we won't face condemnation. Okay? We won't face condemnation from our disobedience or disobedience to the law. But Paul's focus here is not so much on that like it is in Galatians where he talks about the curse of the law. He says in, in Galatians 3.13, he talks about that and he says that that curse we've been rescued from through Christ who has redeemed us from the curse of the law. That's not so much the focus here. Rather, here the focus is on the failure of the law to deal with the problem of sin. It's the failure of the law. Not what the law is going to do to you, it's what the law can't do. It's a focus on the powerlessness, lessness, powerlessness, I got it, of the Mosaic law concerning our sin. Uh, Paul will talk about that in Romans 8.3. What the law could not do, God did in sending his son. Or the laws, you might think of it this way, it's a focus on the law's inability to overcome the power of sin in our lives. And you'll see exactly what I'm talking about in chapter 7, which we'll begin to look at in a moment, where Paul informs us that the law, listen, the law, rather than making people holy, actually stimulates sin in the person who is still held captive by it or bound by it that being the one who does not belong to Christ. You're going to see it right in the text. See, the truth of the matter is the law actually serves to strengthen the power of sin, not weaken or destroy it as one might think. So I believe when Paul says the Christian is not under the law, what it really means is that they are no longer under the binding authority of the law. They have been entirely set free or released from any bondage to the power of the Mosaic law. So let me summarize, because I know this is a lot to kind of swallow all at once. The Christian has been delivered from the binding force of the law as a whole, as a whole, the entire thing, because I don't believe you can divide it up in all these different parts. From the whole of the law, he has been delivered, which is necessary not only for their salvation, but also, but also for their sanctification. And of course, being released from the law's binding power authority means that the Christian has been freed from its condemning power. Of course, but I don't believe that is the only thing that it means to not be under the law. I don't think it's limited to that. 
To not be under the law is to not be under the law. End of story. I am not under its binding authority or power. No more, any longer. Not as a Christian. One writer says in Romans 6.14, this guy, this guy who wrote this book, commenting on this passage, says, Romans 6.14, that passage, for sin will have no dominion over you. Why? Because you are not under law but under grace. He says this. In Romans 6.14, the Scripture declares not only that the law has absolutely nothing to contribute in the accomplishment of the believer's sanctification, it, it can't contribute to that, but on the contrary, that freedom from the law's bondage is actually one indispensable factor, one absolutely necessary thing that must happen in that important work of God in the soul. In other words, the Christian must be released from the law in order for the Christian sanctification to take place. That's the way I understand what Paul is saying in Romans 6.14. He must be. She must be. And and I think this will make sense, hopefully. I hope it gets a bit clearer as we now look at chapter 7. We're just going to look at the first six verses. This will be quick. Let's do that. Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? Remember, he's coming back now. He, he, He made this statement in 14, not under the law. Whoa, 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 Paul. What are, you, what are you talking about? Now he's going to talk about it. He's going to explain why he's saying what he's saying. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law. Did you see that? What? See, he said something like this, very similar, that kind of language, when he said in Romans 6 that we died to sin. Do you remember that? We died to sin. Now he's using that same type of language to talk about the Mosaic law. We have died to the law. How? Through the body of Christ. Keep reading, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Verse 5, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. All right, we're going we're gonna to work through that. Now, in your bulletins, there's an outline. We're simply going to do two things. We're going to consider how and why the Christian has been freed from the law of Moses. Why? So that we might better understand God's process for the Christian sanctification. Because, beloved, if, if you mix this up, you, you might attempt to accomplish your sanctification, not through the way God wants you to do it, but through another way a way that will never accomplish it, by somehow placing yourself back under the law. All right, how is the Christian freed from the law of Moses? That's the first thing, and then why is the Christian freed from the law of Moses? Let's break down the passage. You ready? You sure? Okay, we're going to do it. We're going to run fast. Verse 1, 
Just look at it again. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. All right, this is simple. This is very simple. It's not meant to be complicated. Paul simply draws his reader's attention to a principle that anyone who knows anything about the law would be familiar, familiar with. And the principle is this. As long as you are alive, you are obligated to obey the law. But once you are dead, then the law has no more power. Here he says binding, okay? You could say power or jurisdiction. That's how one translation puts it. Or authority, it's another translation, or dominion. Once you're dead, the law has no more power or jurisdiction or authority or dominion over you. Hello? Death sets one free from any and all obligations concerning the law. The law is simple. The law has authority over the living, not the dead. Huh? Right. I mean, we just know this debt law. Right? While the person's alive, they have a responsibility to pay their debts. When they're dead, the law has no more power over them. Right? Right. I'm not suggesting that you die to get out of debt. That's not what I'm saying. That's not a, that, don't draw that implication. Although that would be true, but it, don't do that. Uh, so... He's making, Paul's just making a simple point that's universally accepted. That's all. He's just drawing their attention to that, okay? So don't make it more than that. It's not. Now Paul illustrates his point in verses 2 through 3. So he made the point. Now he's going to give an illustration of the point. And he does it by a reference to a married couple and the law concerning marriage. This is interesting. Watch. Romans 7, 2 and 3. Let's read it again. For a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies... She is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Okay. How does this illustrate Paul's point in verse 1? How does it do that? Well, concerning marriage law, it is binding only so long as both partners are alive, are alive, right? Do you remember the, many of you took marriage vows and the marriage vow was, maybe you said this, till death do us part, till death do us part. So in Paul's illustration, because, it's just an illustration, because one has died, because one has died in his illustration, the law had lost any binding authority that it once had. It's gone. Now, Paul certainly, listen, he certainly could have chosen another illustration to make his point, but I am convinced that he specifically chose this one because it helps prepare his readers for what he's about to tell them in verse 4. So don't, don't miss this now. Don't miss this part of the illustration. The woman being released from the law of marriage because of the death of her husband was now free to join herself to another man. Don't miss that. So I think this is, I think Paul's making, he's making some connecting parallel points. And that brings me to the first point in the outline. How has the Christian been released from the law? How did that happen? Look at verse 4. Again, 
Likewise, my, or for the first time, likewise, my brothers, second time, my brothers, you also. Likewise, I just gave you this illustration. I made the point, I gave an illustration. Now, similar to this, you have also, what? Died to what? The law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, just in case you're confused. <laughs> he makes that, who's the one who was raised from the dead? Christ, Jesus, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Okay, so now listen. It is the act of having died to the law. It is that act that results in the Christian not being under the law, as Paul cited in Romans 6, chapter 14. It is because of that act. Because of this death, Paul refers to the Christian, or Paul refers, because of this death of the Christian that Paul refers to, the Christian is no longer under the binding authority of the law. They have been released from the law that God gave through Moses. But you ask, how did that occur? How did they die to the law? I'm still alive, Jeremy. I'm not dead. Yeah, I get that. I get you're physically, yes, you're still alive, but you died, maybe you remember this in Romans 6, you died through the body of Christ. Well, what does that mean? Well, we know what it means. It's a reference to Christ's death when he gave his body to die on the cross. That's what it is. We died through the body of Christ when he gave his body for us. And in Romans 6, it says, every person who has exercised saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ has been united to him in his, what? Death and resurrection. And it is being united to that death that you and I, you if you're a Christian, were fully released from our obligations under law. Fully released. Why? So that we might belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. And here's the interesting parallel, which you probably already see it now with Paul's illustration in verses 2 through 3. In the case of the woman, because of the death of her husband, she is released from the law of marriage, and that enables her now to enter into a new relationship. And in the case of the Christian being freed from the bondage of the law through the death of Christ, they are now enabled to be joined to Christ. But that is not all. Why has the Christian been joined to Christ? Why? Look back at the text. Let the text answer that question for you. Don't guess. What's the word of God said? Why? Why has this all occurred? I don't get it. Romans 7, 4, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. Who? To him who has been raised from the dead in order that. This is why we may bear fruit for God. That's why. And that brings me right to the second point. Why has the Christian been re released from the law? Why? You can answer that question. Yeah, does that sound counterintuitive a little bit? Wait a minute. I don't... You're telling me they're released from the law so that they... 
I mean, the law tells you, you know, what to do to live for God, but you're saying they've been released from that so that they might bear fruit for God? So that they might actually live lives that are honoring to God, truly honoring to Him? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. And I'm just saying that because that's what the text says. And here's one conclusion you can draw from what Paul says. Listen, apart from being released from the law and joined to Christ, we would be unable to bear fruit for God, unable to truly honor the Lord with our lives because we would still be under the binding authority of the law and as a result, and the result of that, would not, it would not be holiness, but actually it would be more and more sinfulness. You go, wait a minute, I don't believe that. Okay, let's read the text because that's exactly what Paul points out in verses five through six. Look back at it. Romans 7, verse 5 through 6. He just made that statement. So now he's going to explain it. Verse 5. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused. Do you know what aroused means? Well, aroused, like, uh, i got to be careful. Aroused, excited, uh, inflamed. You know, you can be aroused by a woman, men. Woo! You see? Okay? Do you understand where that, where that... Okay, so this says the law... What's it say? Let's read it. Our sinful passions were aroused by the law. We're at work in our members to bear fruit for God. For death. Are you kidding me? And then verse 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that, here it is again, here's why, we serve in a new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So here we go. Paul says, while we were living in the flesh, and by the way, I'll come back to this this phrase, living in the flesh. I have to because it's all through chapter 8 but I'm not going to do it today. I'm going to come back to it. But the NIV, in an attempt to explain the phrase, living in the flesh, because that's more literal translation, living in the flesh. What does that mean? Well, the NIV just translates it this way, for when we were controlled by the sinful nature. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature. That works for now. If you don't understand what living in the flesh means, that works for now. Okay? Controlled by the sinful nature. You understand that, right? For when we were controlled by the sinful nature. Now, when was that? When was that? Well, for the Christian, it was before they were saved. Before we died to sin. Do you remember Romans chapter 6? Before sin's enslaving power over us was broken through our union with Christ. And when we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, listen, this is the key, were not restrained by the law, They weren't kept down by the law. The law didn't make us better or more holy. Not at all. Rather, our sinful passions were aroused by the law. The law acted like gasoline does to a flame. Why? Why? Is there something inherently wrong with the law? No, there's not. And that's exactly what Paul will come back to, because you might be thinking that now. Wait a minute. There's something wrong with the law if it causes people to 
to go crazy or more into sin. He's going to address that in the same chapter in the verses that follow now, 7 through 12. We'll come back to that. It's like a defense of the law. Now he has to defend it. No, there's nothing inherently wrong with the law. There's something, though, inherently wrong with us. There's something wrong with us. But the solution to our problem, to our disease called sin, is not the law, but Christ. That's the solution. Whose death becomes the believer's death and releases them from bondage to the law so that they can serve God in an entirely new way. An entirely new way. Not through the written law of Moses, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. Spirit that Christ has graciously given to all who belong to Him. The one, the Holy Spirit, is the one who truly enables and empowers us to live a life pleasing to God. It is the Holy Spirit who progressively changes us from rebels into willing and joyful followers of God. It is the Holy Spirit. It is not the law. A couple of comments here from some other writers. One says, Paul is careful to indicate that this emancipation, this freedom from the law, is in order to permit a new attachment, namely to the risen Lord and his spirit, so that from this union might flow a fruitfulness of life unattainable under the law. Unattainable under the law. Another writer says, or the same writer, commenting on that, that phrase, the written code. He says, the written code, which has special reference to the law rather than the scripture in general. Right? This is, this is the code of God written down for the people of God, given to them through the servant, his servant Moses. That written code has no power. This, is, this, is, this would have contradicted what the Jews would have been thinking at the time. They held the law. The law was at such a place now that they worshiped the law, I would say, even more than they worshiped the lawgiver. It was like, this is it. This is what's going to save us. This is what's going to make us right. This is what's going to set us apart and sanctify us. No, 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 no. And this is why there's this, this challenge now because Gentiles are coming in. They don't know any. They don't. What are, what are we going to do with them? Well, we're not going to stick them under the law. You're not going to force them back under the law. Are you kidding me? That's not going to, that doesn't save them. That's not going to make them live holy lives. There's no power in the law to give life and to produce a service acceptable to God. And then finally, one more quote. McLean again, he says this, God cuts us loose from the law and then joins us to Jesus Christ. And that union ensures that we shall bring forth fruit to God and not to sin as before. So I was thinking about this, you know, this, remember I told you this is debated in Christian circles, and, and, and good Christians can disagree about the role of the law or how we are to think about the law and, and things of this nature. And so I'm giving you one position, the one I think is accurate, but there is some disagreement here. They discuss this. And so this might be new to you. You might be thinking, ah, I don't even know what to do with all this. I'm setting the groundwork where we're going through Romans. I'm setting the groundwork for 
the stuff we're going to look at next in, in chapter 7 and chapter 8. Um, but let me just say this, and, I, and again, I would encourage you, if you to, to study more, to understand these things, uh, to re- have resources like this, to gain access. This is four bucks on Amazon, four dollars, and it's a simple read, um, but I think it would enlighten you quite a bit. It is not the law of God, but rather the Son of God and the Spirit of God. This is what I want to just kind of conclude with. It's not the law, but the Son of God and the Spirit of God that are responsible for your sanctification as a Christian. For your progressive growth in holiness. For your likeness to Christ. Why? Because the law is powerless to truly change you and God Maybe someone would disagree with this, but God never intended it to. He never intended it to. Rather, He gave it, He gave the law, beloved, to show, to show sinners their desperate need for a Savior. Uh, their desperate need for a new heart. This is what the law should do. It, it should expose how messed up we are. That was the intent of the law to drive the sinner to Christ. For the sinner to cry out, be merciful to me. I am, I am undone before you, and the law makes that so clear. I cannot find within myself the power to live in a way that you would be glorified by, Lord. That you would be honored by. I cannot find anything within myself to please you, God. Where is that power? And the law just forces you down, just keeps making it so obvious. You're powerless. That's why all this nonsense about, you know, there's a little bit of good and then a little bit of bad in everyone, and, and, and hopefully you can just um, suppress the bad and, 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 and encourage more of the good. And that, that's how you live for God. No, I'm sorry, guys. I'm sorry. That's just not what the Bible says. And, and you want to know that for sure? Just expose that sinner to the law. Let them, let them live with that law for a little bit. They're, they're going to come to grips with the fact that there is no good. There is no power within you to live for God. Rather, all the law does is cause the sinner to rebel. It kind of... It, it just inflames that, arouses that. It comes alive all of a sudden. Paul's going to do that. He's going to say that again in the next verses. Read chapter 7. Read the entire thing. He's going to say it again. Oh, my goodness, I feel like this thing welling up inside of me. Sin. And the law exposed it. So it's, it's really given to show our desperate need for a power to live for God. And it's a power that we find not in the written code of the law that God gave through Moses, but it's a power that we find in the Holy Spirit that God graciously gave to all who have trusted in Christ. You understand? It's the Spirit of God. It's my, it's my union with Christ that enables me, empowers me, motivates me now to live for God. Let that you know, sit with you a little bit and, and try to, to think that through. Um, you know, what is the first fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5? 
Huh? It is love, beloved. It's love. I don't miss that. It's not your fruit. It's not mine either. I love myself in my sinful ways. Self-love, that's my fruit. Fruit of the flesh. Fruit of my fallen, fallen humanness. That's my fruit. The fruit of the Spirit of God is love. Sacrificial love. Love for the other. Love that says, I love you not because you deserve it, not because you've earned it, not because I'm hoping to get something back from it. No, I just love. I give. Where's that come from? It doesn't come from me. All right? So Paul goes on to say, Romans 13, he talks about this in Galatians. Listen, love is ultimately the fulfillment of God's law. Well, I mean, when you think about it, if you apply love to everything, then you'll, you'll do what honors the Lord. You'll do what honors the Lord. You'll fulfill the law through the power of the Spirit, through the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Paul says in Galatians 5, just listen, he says, if you are led by the Spirit, if you're a Christian, you're not under the law. It's one or the other. Either you are led by the Spirit, you are living according to the Spirit, the Spirit indwells you, or you are under the law. And if you're led by the Spirit, then what's going to happen is in your life, fruits of the Spirit are going to be manifested. Love, joy, peace, right? And if you're living like that because you're a Christian, then what law can there be against you? There is no law because you will fulfill God's desires for you. You will honor the Lord with your life as you walk according to the Spirit because love is the manifestation of the Spirit. So think about that. I was thinking even just in in giving. Remember I talked about giving, right? So under the law, they had a tithe, 10%. There is more to it than that. We can't get into it now, but it's a law. It's a command. You could potentially fulfill you could come into compliance with that law, but you could be really upset about it. Huh? You could be hating it. You could be not wanting to do it. You can externally comply with it, and you've complied theoretically with that law externally. But did you please the Lord in that? I don't think so. I don't think so, not at all. And so we get to Corinthians, and Paul says, I want you to give not out of compulsion... Not because someone's forcing you to, but I want you to give joyfully and willfully. Who gives like that? Well, the only person who gives like that is a person who is led by the Spirit. The Spirit is now at work in their lives. Love is being manifested. They now have love for God, love for His people, love for the church. And out of love, they're giving. And then, my friends... There is no 10% cap. It's just love. Is there any cap to love? No. Right. We'll talk more about this. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we're, we're navigating through uh, some more difficult things here in Romans. But Father, help us not to, to check out, but to press on and 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 to stop maybe and pause and study this through. 
Think about it. Meditate on it. Father, may your spirit give us wisdom, understanding, and submission to your word. May we, may we understand that our sanctification, our ability to be made like your son, Jesus Christ, is not going to come from some external code. Your, your law is holy, Father. Paul will make that very clear. It is good, but our holiness doesn't come from it. It, it comes from, Father, your spirit that indwells us. I find, it, I find it fascinating, Father, that on the day of Pentecost, uh, a day where you gave your, your spirit, the Holy Spirit came, and the church was born and, and, and dwelt those who were believers in Jesus Christ on that day, the day of Pentecost was also a day that the Jews have, have also celebrated or connected with Pentecost the, the giving of the law at Sinai, Mount Sinai. I, I find that interesting, and it's almost as if you're saying, God, listen, yes, I, I gave you the law, but listen, I now have given you my Holy Spirit. Rejoice in that. Be excited about that, because now you serve in a new way. Now you can truly live for me. Now you can bear fruit for me. Now you can be changed. Now your heart is new. No longer external compliance at best, but inward obedience, joyful and willful, does the Spirit produce in the Christian's life. Father, I pray for those that are out here that are maybe you know, they're trying, to, they're trying to live for you, but they've never even given their life to Jesus Christ that they might understand this. Give up! That they would just give up. It's pointless. It's futile. They can never please you by trying to live according to your law on their own. They can't do it. The law just stimulates them to more sin. Father, they need Christ. They need to be released from the law, joined to Christ, and given the gift of your Holy Spirit that they might live for you. Father, for for those of us who have your Holy Spirit, Father, may we rejoice in that. May we never never lose sight of, of who's actually producing that work in us. It's not us. It's not the law. But it is your Holy Spirit. And it is because of our union with Christ that we have the Holy Spirit. And we thank you for it. It's in his name we pray. Amen.